butterfly in the sky. All right, so my name's Ani. I use they, them pronouns. And uh, I just had my candidacy interview for PSL. So that's pretty exciting. Nice, congrats. Um, all right, uh, I'm Fayez. I use he, him pronouns. And uh, what made me happy today... Actually, it was a pretty chill day. I'm just, like, I'm actually glad I'm getting to talk to you guys again. Like, this is, uh, been looking forward to this. And this is actually the part of my day that's making me quite happy. Oh. (laughs) Wholesome. Yeah, beat that. (laughs) 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 All right. So, I don't know where I am on the stack here, but I'll go next. I'm Jess. I use they, them pronouns. Um... I also, this is the highlight of my Sunday every day, or every Sunday, so I'm excited about this, Um, but also I have my tuition paid uh, for summer classes. uh, Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm getting getting ready to, like, uh, move out of state and move to another state where there are um, slightly better more i don't know options <laughs> for me so this is like the first time i'm going to be doing that so i'm very excited that's awesome congrats thanks so i am andrew he him pronouns and i've actually had kind of a rough start to my day between running out of propane while making coffee and whatnot but what makes me happy now oh. is i finally have a coffee in front of me, a nice Irish coffee with that terrible nice. Irish whiskey I showed you guys. <laughs> so this is making me happy. I'm going to really enjoy this conversation. Wait, why do you need propane for coffee? For your power? Yeah, I because I live in the, the tiny house, the, the propane is how I run my stove. And if I run oh, out of that, okay. I can't make coffee on my stove because I don't run electricity. Hmm. So I only use electricity for lights and charging my phone. I, uh, for my everything else, it's propane. My fridge runs on propane and all that good stuff. And I just have a small solar setup. Hmm. So my coffee is also Irish inspired this morning. Oh, because it's morning here. <laughs> oh, and, uh... okay. No, it's not. It's it's like the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, and I'm sipping vodka too. So like three people right now are gonna get yes. rowdier and rowdier. We're gonna get right into it. <laughs> Uh, all right, I think in in the the form of our fathers. <laughs> yeah, Marks would be proud. Yeah. Next time, brandy and cigars. Otherwise, it doesn't work. <laughs> yes. Cuban cigars. Um, all right, I think tradition dictates that Andrew has always prepared something, and uh, I guess <laughs> he should go first. Yeah, tell well, us I haven't what we prepared about. something specific, but I'm always prepared. All so right. <laughs> what we got is we're going to kick it off in section one of chapter seven. And chapter seven is the labor process and producing surplus value. So section one is focused on the labor process. And right Wait, off sorry, the bat. Andrew. Yep. Sorry, can I introduce? Could you do like a like a 10 second just lead up? Like, because uh, we did, we just finished kind of a section of like four to six, right? Um, so just kind of like transition over before we get to seven. Would that be okay? No, yeah. Yeah. So, does it? Uh, yeah, I could try and just do a quick recap of six. Because I remember reading four to six, but just not like how it's relevant to uh, like labor power. I I just forget. Uh, yeah, I'm also checking. Like now, you made me wonder if I remember six. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, I think uh, six had a lot so, to do with what was buying and selling of labor power. Oh, Jess, sorry, I cut you. 
Oh, no, go ahead. That's basically what I was going with is, like, uh, we learned how labor uh, plays a part in the process of, um, like, how something uh, forms value and how it's exchanged in the marketplace. So we learned how labor becomes uh, labor power and how labor itself is a commodity. And that's kind of where we're coming up to this uh, new section where we are learning about how uh, surplus value is produced. Yes, true. Like chapter six basically started telling how uh, just how we consider labor power a commodity and why how we calculate its value because you need to sustain the laborer. And uh, then we basically dived like the the whole uh, transition from six to seven i think was the idea of mark saying okay this is all we're considering all of this in exchange like he's buying and selling labor power but in order to actually know where surplus value comes from we have to go into the production sphere and this is what uh, seven dives into really just like one other concept i'd want to emphasize from chapter six is because we were looking at the value of labor and how that's going to now apply in the sphere of production, we should remember where the value of labor comes from in the first place. And, you know, as was mentioned, the exchange value is derived from what is it, the the means of subsistence or the, I forget what that's called. The, yeah, the subsistence for the workers. Yeah. So like, you know, that's the situation, like workers need to eat and need to maintain themselves and have a place to live. So that's kind of like the root of value, I guess. Um, I don't think I'd call it the root of value. Like, still, value only gets added through labor power, uh, but mm. labor power needs that sort of sustenance to it. Like, it, it needs right. those things to survive, but those things aren't what add add value. Like, it's in the end. And I think that's actually what he starts to, to get into here in Chapter 7, is he's talking about how, um, like, why we would even want to apply our labor to a project. And like, I, I think that I, I almost, I agree with both of you actually, because I think that when it comes to like use value to a person, like you have to have a, a motivation for applying your labor to something that's not just giving you subsistence. So, um, yeah. which is, it has to in some way provide subsistence yeah. to you. Like, uh, so yeah, sorry. I agree with both of you. <laughs> <laughs> like taking the idea of subsistence and then trying to see how surplus value is produced and how much labor power do you need to put in to actually achieve subsistence or achieve the like the the value you need to obtain your subsistence and then but saying okay i, I probably shouldn't get into that too much without building up before because that goes into uh like that's the mid chapter 7 stuff but yeah the transition is now we're we're not looking at the sphere of exchange where we're, we're the capitalist uh, confronts the worker in the marketplace. Now we're actually looking at the labor process itself. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not the root isn't the right way to look at it, but rather like it's kind of a circle where in order to create value, you need laborers and the laborers need commodities. And how do you make those commodities with labor? So just like the point in the circle that you're starting, we started with like the means of subsistence to maintain a worker. And now we're continuing that circle around and it's going to close back onto itself, I think. Sort of, yeah. Actually, that is like because the worker needs to work enough to get his means of subsistence, and then we see from that he basically illuminates where surplus value comes in from. Mm -hmm. Cool. Any other review questions or points before we go to the next? I'm all set. Yeah. All right, um, Andrew. All right. You want to take it off? 
Uh, yeah, so um, section one of chapter seven really just starts with laying out some some important definitions. So this is where we learn um, like labor power in use is labor. And uh, elementary factors of labor are work itself and the instruments of production. And that's when we finally start hearing him talk about the big words, which is the means of production. So um, in order to like understand what the means of production are, you need to understand what make them up. So the two main factors that make the means of production are the raw material it takes, or that, that is the subject of the labor and becomes the, out, the outcoming product, and then the instruments of labor, which are anything from like hammers to machines that you use to actually turn the raw material into the final product. So like that's like the big definition we need to look at right now is like what is the means of production and he says it's the instruments and the subject of labor. Anybody got something they want to add that they've uh, they think is important for section one? No, but I was just surprised um, by taking a big swig of my coffee and remembering I spiked it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Like woo. <laughs> All right, like one thing, like I have a few tiny notes on section one. I think, it, yeah, it's basically not more than a page. Um, a few distinctions I found nice were uh, the fact that he now says what distinguishes human labor, like what actually makes labor human rather than what basically animals do when they fish or when they like look for food and stuff, is the fact that... Uh, at the end of every labor process, we get a result that already existed in the imagination of the laborer before the commencement of the process. And the big distinction I think he's drawing there is, for example, when a carpenter sets out to make a table, that table existed in their mind beforehand. And the product of that labor, of yeah. the material before, is, the, is basically the realization of that uh, picture that the person had in their imagination. Another difference that I found really uh, enlightening was uh, the difference between raw materials and natural resources. And the way he made that distinction is by saying that raw materials have already been filtered through a labor process. So planks of wood are different than uh, trees in a forest. So trees in a forest are natural resources. And by just cutting down a tree and carrying it somewhere else, you basically just removed it from its natural environment. So that's a natural resource. But the planks that you get in order to make a table, these are your raw materials. And these have been filtered through a labor process in which you cut down the tree trunk and you know, section it off into different parts that you can use. Another, I think, section that he uh, mentioned was that uh, which which he builds on later a lot in his discussion of uh, transferring of value from raw materials to products of uh, labor, is that products of previous labor, their use values, may enter another labor process as instruments and therefore become means of production. And every object that has a use value also has a variety of properties and therefore can serve as raw material in different processes. Um, Basically, I think he mentioned, you know, that corn can serve as a raw material in, I forget what it was. It can serve as a raw material for, ah, a, seed. for a seed, but I forgot the other process. So I'll just use coal. I think coal, for example, can be used in like for a furnace to melt down uh, uh, iron, but it can also be used to add to iron to make it steel. So it, like it has different properties and can be used in different ways, for example. 
And on the note of coal, is that you can mine, you can use coal to mine more coal. But who got the first coal? Yeah, yeah, that's how you. Yeah, someone had to yeah, pick it up by yeah, hand. Yeah, someone had to like break. Yeah, the... he says that coal becomes both the like means of production and the product of coal mining at the same time. Someone had to break their stone pickaxe to get the first coal. Sorry for the barking in the background. Oh, that's, Gee, right. I, that's right. I got home now, and now things should be chill. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then the last, like, one of the last things I remember in this section were characteristics of the labor process. Uh, the first one is the worker works under control of the capitalist. Um, and the second one is that the product is the property of the capitalist. So basically the capitalist has purchased the labor power, the means of production, and the product which the labor power produces out of those means belongs to the capitalist. And the the labor process is a process between objects or things that the capitalist has purchased that's how production under capitalism works like that was the labor process uh okay so um a couple of things so first of all uh marx is referring to a male labor um like the labor he does this so on etc uh it's not really addressing capital because marx doesn't anticipate it yet but you know there i believe like productive labor is being done by women in the household at this point but Marx isn't really cognizant or aware. He has a blind spot in that area. Um, so we can note that and also that, like, Silvia Federici's work, which um, has been referenced a lot, like Caliban and the Witch, really builds upon Marx's ideas and applies it uh, to women and, like, the primitive accumulation on women's labor. Um, so if you're interested in that, like, Caliban and the Witch is a great read. I remember, like, I, I heard her interview with Rev Left Radio, and I think uh, she mentioned something, that that was her critique, that he didn't, like, he only looked at the instruments of production and didn't look at that. But one thing is, he does mention that you need the new generation of laborers, and that that by itself is labor under capitalism. So I wonder if he actually meant women's work in the household by that, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. I wouldn't want to presume. But because I mean, he does have sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, he does ahead. have one quote where he actually describes man as very much a similar natural resources to, like you said, trees or oil or or water or whatever it may be, because it springs naturally from the earth. But the thing that separates us is that we are cognizant of our own production. So, like in a way, he I, he subtly acknowledges the that all the natural processes of life are in fact factors in in commodity production and in value of things, but I'm not I, I wouldn't go so far to say that he you know, he addresses it properly. No, no. He may, may like he basically footnotes it once in a while, maybe or, or something. Yeah. But not really it's not his focus. And I think that was if Sylvia Federici's critique also. Like he didn't focus on that enough. I was going to say, I think that's a fair critique. I mean, there are some things that um, we do have to acknowledge um, socially as far as like the time period, because I mean, he even quotes something uh, calling people savages. Yeah, I mean, he, like, he does use the word savages more than <laughs> there, yeah. there are some concerning things here um, as far as his perspective, though. I mean, the quote itself was, was relevant because... I mean, it, it shouldn't have been worded that way, but it was a relevant quote. And although his his theory is applicable across, you know, humankind, um, he definitely doesn't seem to acknowledge um, like domestic work as having any sort of value um, separate of his theory here. Because I mean, it, it does kind of throw a hiccup in the theory that that people do 
um, you know, a significant amount of their work. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, maybe we have this skewed perspective because we have this like nuclear family um, outlook where we think that there was just this entire um, like binary or like servitude uh, dynamic, but that may not have been the case at the time in the way that we recognize it. So, you know, maybe that wasn't, maybe he was recognizing that just as like things people do as humans in a domestic sense. Cause he talks about labor that a man does just because it's labor they need to do, you know, like building your own fire or building your own home or whatever is something that, you know, you do as your own labor. And so, I mean, maybe he just doesn't recognize um, that there's a variance in the amount of, like in the role that uh, somebody who is a more domestic position in society might, might play in the, uh, I don't know, economic trade. Uh, yeah. Like I remember from the interview that, Marx supposedly did live in the time that the binary was there. Like this, this okay, maybe not the full-on nuclear family that America had in the 50s, but uh, more of, you know, this. there was already these set traditional, quote-unquote traditional, you know, family values of wife stays at home. Because that was, from the interview, what I got, that that was the whole point, basically, of the witch hunts. Like, they created this this thing of, women subservient uh, stay at home do you know create the new generation of laborers um, like for me it was just basically Marx addresses that laborers need subsistence they need that but doesn't really address women like he doesn't mention women when saying that we need you know the laborer to have food and then the new generation of laborers to grow up properly and reproduce he does not mention women he just mentions reproduction as you know something on the side yeah, I think this is a point where it's important for us to be like Marxist beyond what Marx wrote, because his ideas are valid, but that doesn't mean they're like scrutiny proof and doesn't mean they can't be extended in the face of new evidence. No, definitely. That's that's a very good point. No, right. And and I think that's a good idea too, especially and I, I think that's like a good way to put it, that we need to continue applying um this idea of, of what a laborer should and does do in participating in the economy um further to domestic work as well. So I, I agree with you that we maybe need to take his theory a little further. Um and the so that that's kind of the note on like Federici and you can go on to read more work. The other thing, um just what was mentioned about how, you know, there's an explicit thing you're trying to create in your mind, like your imagination is being enacted in the labor process itself. And the other thing I really took away was that it is about use value. You can't just be like trying to make something for its own sake in Marx's model, rather for it to be the application of labor. And I think I'm probably mixing up that wording exactly, but for it to be the application of labor, you need to have the intent to produce use value. So in this case, we see that like the primary reason for all this economic production is to fill or meet the needs of humans. And that's kind of like the original thing that drives all of this going. Remember that like exchange value is the other side of the coin for another use value. But how it begins is we're trying to create use value to meet someone else's needs. And furthermore, at this point, Marx is just describing the labor process agnostic to any particular um, social relation of production. So he's laying out the general terms that he's going to be able to use to analyze various forms of, uh, sorry, various systems for production, not just capitalism. Capitalism will be why exactly are people producing 
particular things, but the labor process is not capitalism specifically. So I think going further in that, I, I appreciated that he talked about like machines that we create to do labor for us. And um, he talks about how, like when you're when you're talking about how something has to have a use value, and that that's basically the only um, like where it derives its own value is like a, in in its position in the economy. There, um, like the the machine itself, he says something like like a gold loom just because a capitalist has a habit um, has no more value than a steel loom, and the value of a loom in our society is still the value of a steel loom. Because that's all that we need is for it to create yarn. Uh, so, so it's socially, um, like socially determined, yeah. socially necessary, basically value that you need exactly. to add is, is less in the steel loom, and that's the average. So a gold loom doesn't do anything, even though it costs more. So this tumbles onto one of the questions that I had. So in the case of a capitalist who the socially necessary mean of production is a steel loom, but the capitalist really likes gold looms because he wants to be fancy or whatever. Um, and so he makes all his workers use gold looms and he wastes a bunch of money on that. So Marx says that, like, you know, we are setting the baseline of what is actually required. And just because a capitalist wants the gold loom doesn't mean it's adding to the value. So here's my question. Is the capitalist use of a gold loom in that hypothetical situation actually like the production of a use value for himself or for themselves? That the capitalist just likes the feeling of having his workers using a gold loom, even though it like doesn't add anything so is that a use value to use the non-socially necessary mean it's only a use value to him personally i mean like that that's where the value ends yeah if it fulfills a desire or want of his i suppose that is the use of it but like in effect it stops right there like there's no additional value value placed upon it because he thinks it's fancy i would say so it's equivalent to if the capitalist was like having people chop up apples and he just ate an apple at the beginning. Oh, you mean because they labored in chopping up the apple? Oh, sorry. I mean, like, if the labor process was we're going to take apples, slice them up, and sell them, uh, like, to use a golden knife is the equivalent of just, like, eating one of the raw materials. Like, you're just immediately satisfying your own use value as a capitalist who owns all this store stuff. You're not embodying the use value in a commodity. So... Like the thing with the right. with the gold versus steel spindle, what I liked about it. So the, he builds up into how do you how does the labor process transfer value? Like how do you take the raw materials? How do they add value to the finished product? So the first thing he tries to build up is that the labor expended to produce the raw materials and the instruments of labor is embodied in the end product and can be treated as labor expended earlier in the same process. But we have to remember that labor like how we uh, define value is defined with socially necessary labor time so the socially necessary labor time uh the no sorry not socially necessary in this case let's say the labor time it took to produce a gold spindle the socially necessary labor time to to you know extract gold probably and make it into a gold spindle is a lot more than what you'd need for a steel spindle let's assume so the labor embodied in the gold spindle is actually more there's more socially necessary labor time embodied in the gold spindle the wear and tear of that spindle then transfers onto the yarn when the uh, spinner uses the spindle and cotton to produce yarn so that's why the value of uh, the yarn that's produced from a gold spindle is technically higher 
But given that everyone else produces yarn with a steel spindle, the socially necessary labor time for producing uh, yarn is less than that which, like, considering all the labor time embodied in the cotton and the steel spindle into the finished product of yarn with a steel spindle, given that that's the majority of workers using that, the socially necessary labor time needed to produce yarn is a lot less than the cumulative necessary labor time it is to produce yarn with a gold spindle. That's why, in the end, him having bought a gold spindle made like used a lot more, which uh, which embodied a lot more labor time, should not transfer onto the end value because we're talking about socially necessary, which is determined by average conditions and average labor time. Yeah, and that, that point connects really smoothly to, like, the advancements in technology and how, like, once the product you're using becomes outdated and you can no longer produce the yarn at the same rate as this new machinery, then the actual value of your means of production goes down. So, like, it, even if you're using, no matter if it's gold, if it's, if it's still producing at the same or lesser rate as what is socially available to everyone else at the time that has no no effect on the the value output of the product yeah i thought that was a really interesting note because if a technological advancement occurs and you're like automatic looms i hate that i'm gonna make everyone do it manually like it, it has changed because it's a social component that technology has changed you are no longer using like the most socially efficient means of production i guess um, and so what you're producing actually does change. Like, yeah, what's and your the value of the labor yeah, drops. Yeah. Well, and also what you're selling changes. Like, it, it actually, you're selling a different product at that point. Like, in, in, at least in our current market, like, if you want to make a parallel. Like, I mean, if you're if you want to buy something that's been handmade when it could be machine made, like you're not selling the same product anymore. You're selling the the use value to somebody that wants to feel good about something being handmade. Like, so, like, you're selling two things to somebody, and it, it not only changes the actual, like, cost of production, it's, like, what somebody is buying for, like, their state of mind, like, their own personal interest. I think, actually, on that point, like, I, I've been thinking about that quite a bit, given that we have this, you know, handmade market, like, we, we people market products as handmade. So, the thing is, the socially necessary labor time, given that we have this big market of handmade products... The socially necessary labor time to produce handmade products is just more than that needing to produce non-handmade products. And I think we can't abstract that much that we say these two products are the same, basically. It's just that really in the handmade product, you just have more socially necessary labor time, given that everybody who's making handmade products just ha just you know embodies more labor time into their products than people who use automation. Uh, um, yeah, it's almost that. become like um, another tier of the market itself. Yeah, like, yeah. So right. they're almost not well, even producing the same product by like the modern ultra specific method of observing it. Yeah. And that's that's the argument I'm making is that they're actually not selling the same commodity. And so like, so like they're selling two commodities. They're selling you the actual product that really the value of it hasn't changed. And then they're selling you the feels. So like. Like they're selling you the idea of it being made a specific different way, which which itself has its own so uh, social value. Um, 
like in itself so like so like when it comes down to the way that our market functions now like something like handmade versus machine made isn't the same kind of comparison as something made with like a steel machine or like a newer version of a steel machine so like i think that that's a little bit different like yes absolutely the value is different because there's so much more labor that's applied but like you're buying the concept of longer labor being applied not just the extra labor and I also think like the modern market has been split into, you know, it, it's no, they, that's the problem that they're no longer considered the same commodity. If someone produces a t-shirt handmade and someone produces it with a machine under Marx's model in capital, at least the, you know, the abstracted model is that they're both producing the same commodity. Socially necessary labor time will dictate that the other commodity requires less socially necessary labor time and therefore has uh, less value embodied in it. And will cost less if we like if we assume a utopia of all that all these free market assumptions working well. But right now we are not selling one commodity. It's really we've we've split the market into this is a market for handmade and th- that's their socially necessary labor time, and this is a market for machine made and that's that socially necessary labor time. Can I just say I'm really thankful that we're really getting to like grapple with the intricacies and full extensions of all these together because like. Damn, like there's so much you can get at just from that one little concept that Marx mentioned offhandedly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back for a second and just sort of like we started talking about laying out the basic terminology in terms of like raw materials, means of uh production, and so on. And I wanted to contrast that with what I learned in bourgeois economics. What I learned in bourgeois economics is that the three things are uh, natural materials labor and capital and the source of surplus value is when you uh when capital works on labor or on uh natural material so how about we like take that on the first thing that doesn't make sense to me is like like try leaving capital in a room with a bunch of raw materials and see how much you produce and no matter how much money you throw at a tree it will not become planks oh and the other thing i note is that like, this really screwed with my head when thinking about automation. But the thing is, like, when you produce a piece of capital machinery, that is something that has to be sold to somebody else to realize that value. And that's how it enters this whole, like, it, it's like a whole sphere of circulation and whatever that we're going to get to later. But uh, it doesn't make sense. Like, things won't work fully the same if everything got fully automated. Because if you created a piece of capital that could, like, fully automate a whole labor process... Why would you sell that to a capitalist instead of just applying it yourself? Obviously, the capitalist has to provide something else there. And what Marx shows they provide is the like setup of the means of production, as in the raw materials and the labor. Is that right? Is that the definition of means of production? Yeah, well, the, mo- the means of production is just the raw material, whatever you are using as a subject of, of your labor to turn into a final product. And the instruments of production, which you use on that subject to turn it into the final product. So, which like, is not necessarily labor. It could also be like the labor of a machine, like not yeah. necessarily human labor, but the yeah. labor of a machine as well. Yeah, the human labor is what takes the value off of those means production of production and applies it to the product. The means of production has its own value. The raw material has its own value, and our labor has its third value. And through our labor, we push the value off those two objects and form it into a third solid state, which is your commodity, your final product. 
there's just a nice quote from Marx. Uh, our friend, Mr. Moneybags, suddenly assumes the modest demeanor of his own workman and explains, exclaims, have I not, have I myself not worked? Have I not performed the labor of superintendence and of overlooking the spinner? And does, and does not this labor too create value? One of my favorite moments is where he lays out what I just said, where he says, like, in an equilibrium system where everything's exchanged for equal parts, um, the value of a product is X socially necessary labor time, Y raw material, plus Z uh, cost of implements. And then he goes on to say, our capitalist stares in astonishment, which I just like pictured the surprise Pikachu meme. And uh, <laughs> out of such a simple addition of existing values, no surplus value can possibly arise. It's like, yeah, no shit. Huh? <laughs> like, I love that chapter as far as going in on him. It was great. Honestly, that was such a funny, like, long section, and things have not changed now. I still have my mom saying, like, oh, well, Jeff Bezos earned all that money. Oh, it's like, he's not managing his employees. Oh. He hired somebody else to manage people, too. He's not, he just has the virtue of ownership. And still you have landlords saying, oh, I want a tip from my rent because I do so much. Yeah, to take what, what is it. up with that? What is up with landlords Bullshit. asking for a tip? Is that That's a, a real thing. I would... Yeah, I thought that was a joke. No shit. Oh, no, it was a it was a tweet. It was like one tweet, but it was a serious thing. All right. Well, that's fucked up. Now, could somebody talk about the difference between labor, labor power, and work, or like labor in power, labor in use, and clarify yeah. that? It's actually in footnote one ninety three. He says, um, work is the process of producing use values, and labor is the process of creating value. So work and labor happen at the same time. They have a dialectical relationship then, right? Because you're producing both use value and uh, what was the other thing? So, and value. So actually, one of the, uh, I'm not sure which which footnote it was, but it was actually a quote from Engels talking about how the English language actually exactly, dis that was, uh, that was the one. distinguishes between work and labor. Yeah, that's the one I, I, I grabbed that from. That's 193. Yeah. So they do happen at the same time, but they don't because one of them is like the organic application of labor and the other one is like the concept of work. Like the one thing I'm a bit fuzzy on is just labor process, labor power is is the commodity that is being sold but labor is the application yes. of labor power then is the use value of labor power is that it like uh, yeah, doing a thing is labor but like selling the thing so selling your power. time is labor power the time you've sold where you act and that's your labor power commodity well yeah you possess the commodity of labor power and you bring it to be sold to the capitalist as a use value which is your labor. And then my labor that I apply in that time creates value. Yep. Yes. And that's when he's actually saying, like, the, the capitalist buys nothing but your labor time from you. That's why you don't get a cut of the end product, because you're, you're alienated from that. You didn't buy a share. You sold your time. You don't even own your time right, right there. The capitalist owns one the... day of yours. It's his use value is your labor. Well, that's why it says that the commodity, like the product, belongs to the capitalist. I think you said that in this yeah, chapter. He said that yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever yeah. buys gets the use value, and you're selling your labor, so he's buying the use value that is your labor. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. The thing about labor power in the end of chapter seven, he mentioned the daily cost of maintaining labor power is the exchange value of labor power. <laughs> 
The daily expenditure of labor power in work is its use value. And the use value of interest to the capitalist in labor power is that it is a source of values that is more than the value it, it is worth, basically. Like, you pay an exchange value, the capitalist pays an exchange value because he wants you to stay alive, basically. That's the cost, that's the exchange value of your labor power. But the use value of your labor power, when the capitalist consumes it, is that it can produce more value than it needs to sustain itself, than its value originally was. Yeah, and he also says something along the lines of, like, the worker doesn't need to work all day, but the capitalist needs to make sure that they are alive all day. <laughs> so, like, they they need to provide um, that, like, safety net or whatever, that, that option, those, those subsidies that they need um, to make sure that their worker stays alive every day. It's not just their labor being applied, it's their ability to apply it. Which, like, is so distinct from the way that our labor um, system functions here in the U.S., where, like, we don't even have health care coverage. <laughs> and, yeah. um, like, like they're like, it's cool if you die. Like, we don't, we don't need you. There's enough unemployed people that we don't need you. Well, one of the things he says about um, labor power and the buying and selling is that, like, through the obfuscation of the value of our labor time, that's the first means that the capitalist sees that they can go and and find their their surplus value out of so like this is labor time is the first moment the capital capitalist goes oh shit look i can i can steal a bunch of money right here and then like they're like as we go on into chapter eight and whatnot you'll see there's a bunch of other points at which the capitalist finds his way to eke out the extra exchange value at the end for himself to get that surplus yeah, he has also to like, buy it, our labor at, at below value in order to make a profit in the end. So it's just us not even having any way to measure what our own labor value is. That's the biggest trick in the book. Like one thing I think we should be careful of is Marx really mentions that actually the capitalist has paid you in full for your exchange value of labor power. He has paid everything in its actual value. If we go back to the example of yarn, cotton, and spindle, if we examine the product of this prolonged process, in 20 pounds of yarn is materialized the labor of five days, of which four days are due to the cotton and the lost steel of the spindle. So these are the values transferred from the raw materials and means and instruments of production. The cotton and lost steel, that's four days of value in the yarn. Now, the fifth day... The remaining day is absorbed by the cotton during the spinning process. So now we have the five days that we talk about in 20 pounds of yarn. Expressed in gold, the labor of five days is 30 shillings. He put up the price before, so let's, it's an arbitrary price. So let's say the labor of five days is embodied in 30 shillings. And this is therefore the price of 20 pounds of yarn given as before, 18 pence as the price of a pound. But the sum of the values of the commodities that entered into the process amounts to 27 shillings. Like, even the labor power that was purchased was, like, if you assume its actual exchange value, it was purchased at its exchange value. The, but the value of the yarn is 30 shillings. Therefore, the value of the product is one-ninth greater than the value advanced for its production. 27 shillings have been transformed into 30 shillings. A surplus value of 3 shillings has been created. The trick has at last succeeded. Money has been converted into capital. 
Every condition of the problem is satisfied while the laws that regulate the exchange of commodities have been in no way violated. Equivalent has been exchanged for equivalent. That was one of the points that I found found really interesting is that he basically takes on that everything was bought by its equivalent. There is no extortion, no forcing, nothing. This is actually what happens in a capitalist mode of production and how surplus value is created. You end up with surplus value because the use value of labor power is that it creates more value than it's actually costs. And there, I think, like this is me now, this there is where the alienation comes in. We produce that surplus value, but that suddenly belongs to the capitalist who just sat on his butt, quote-unquote, overseeing the operation. Uh, so I, um, I was just going to offer... I have in front of me Marx's Capital by Ben Fine and Alfredo Sodfilo, and they have a section on labor and labor power. Um, so what's written here is that to distinguish the workers themselves from their ability or capacity to work, Marx called the latter, as in the capacity to work, labor power, while the workers themselves in their performance and application is called labor. Uh, so like the workers are labor, but in application is labor power, I think. And the important thing to note here is that labor sitting around doesn't matter. It has to be applied towards something, and that's what the capitalist does. So when you question why it is that you've, like, finished all your work in the first couple of hours, but then you have to sit at work all day even though you're not doing anything, it's because of this. It's because you've sold your time not in exchange for, like, a particular amount of commodity. You're selling your own time and labor potential, I guess. And this is actually a, a feature of capitalism. So it's written here. The most important distinguishing feature of capitalism is that labor power becomes a commodity. Now contrast this with the feudal peasant. The feudal peasant owns a certain amount of like grain every month, and you could be a very efficient peasant or you could be a very lazy peasant. It doesn't matter. You need to produce the same amount at the end of the day, and it doesn't matter how long it takes you to do so. So under the feudal system, actually, because you're in control of your own labor power, you can do stuff really quickly and then have more free time. And you don't get that in capitalism. Yeah, like that was what Marx mentioned at the end of chapter six, too, is that the proletariat is basically free in the double sense, free to sell his labor power, but also free of all the means of production in contrast to the feudal peasant who at least owns a part of land that he could use for his own. And the important part about this is that the laborers did not just freely come to the market, but rather they were actually forced onto the labor market to create the conditions for this to occur. And we're going to talk about this later in the book, I guess, but that's like enclosure of the commons and primitive accumulation is actually forcing the basic conditions for this exchange of the labor commodity to exist. Boom. <laughs> Bam. Uh, I've got a list of discussion questions we can move on to. Everyone okay with that? Yeah. Were there any like concepts or aspects or terminology in seven that are unclear to anyone i think we covered a lot of them okay cool oh one thing i just want to mention is that in my few discussions i actually went to stuff that are mentioned in chapter eight like when i talk about labor creating value and labor preserving or transferring value that he went to in chapter eight but i needed that to illuminate a certain point i was making just so if anybody's reading is not confused like right now we're still on this chapter seven side but i did use chapter eight for a point okay so here's my first question marx talks about how there has to be a maintenance cost for the instruments of production and please correct me on the terminology if i misuse these things because i'm still getting them all straight but 
he counts, let's say, a spindle has 100 uses. So therefore, every time you use a spindle, you're consuming 1 100th of a spindle. So therefore, you can add that cost of a spindle divided by 100 to each time you do a production. Right. And Marx takes that math into account. So my question was, like, let's say your spindle breaks and you have to spend 50 bucks to repair the spindle. And that's how Marx can commute, compute the actual value the spindle is adding and like how much you had to expend to establish that spindle as an instrument of production. But sometimes capitalists choose to refurbish or fix the stuff they have. And sometimes they choose to just throw it away and buy a new one. And when you throw it away and buy a new one, there's like environmental externalities. Like somebody has to dump that at the end. How does a capitalist decide whether to fix something or to throw it away and buy a new one? I mean, uh, anytime that you're running a business, you're going to have overhead costs. And like the cost of repairing or buying machinery is something that any capitalist is already going to factor into their business. That's just you cannot operate without already having considered that. And whatever is going to be the most cost efficient, either in the short term or the long term, has to depend on what your like your means are as a capitalist. Like, I guess that's what I'm asking, because usually most of the time it'll be cheaper in the short term to just dump all your shit and buy new things. But that has really catastrophic effects that we're dealing with right now because of like the amount of garbage in the world and climate change. Right. So the capitalists we're have definitely no alienated from the cost of that. So who is taking that cost on them? Like society on the whole, I guess? We're shipping it off to like the third world. <laughs> if I want to stick to the model Marx puts up in Capital when he discusses this stuff. You were mentioning what, uh, if I can understand it correctly, like, correct me if I'm not. So you were asking why is it worth sometimes more to refurbish rather than to replace? Was that one of your questions? Yeah, like, why is it worth more to refer... And also, like, how does the capitalist make that decision? How can we force them to make better decisions, I guess? Ah, okay. Like, I would just... If I address right now the refurbish versus replace... So, there's actually not a big difference between refurbish and replace if you abstract to the model Marx uses. So, let's say you have a spindle that has 100 uses, okay? Uh, you buy that, and then uh, you throw it away after 100 uses, and let's say you bought it for $100, so each use of the spindle transferred $1 of value to your end commodity. Or, what you could do is, that spindle has 100, 100 uses, and doesn't need to be thrown out after them, it just needs to be repaired, and the cost of that repair is another $100, and those $100 guarantee another 100 uses, and for that, you also basically are saying every use will transfer $1. That's how I would like put in the, the like a model of refurbish, not versus, but as equal to replacing. Because you just look at it as if refurbishing had the extra cost of bringing a maintenance worker. Replacing had the extra cost of uh, bringing in a garbage truck, let's say. But if you abstract, both of these costs are basically in the buying of a new spindle or the refurbishing of another one. So, like, if you just abstract enough, refurbish versus replace is the same. I think I understand. So, I think the disposal process is actually part of the cost of the instrument. Even if it's not an upfront cost, it's captured in that because you need to get rid of it for space. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, just quickly, you could choose to leave all of your broken spindles in, like, a corner in the middle of your factory but that's going to impede other things. Yeah, and eventually you're going to have to throw them away. So you're actually just, quote-unquote, hoarding negative value. Like, eventually you're going to have to spend <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah, and I was just going to say, on, on the environmental issue of, like, what is the societal cost of, of this, you know, superfluous waste and, and throwing away things that 
that cause harm just because it's cheaper to do that. I think that a lot of that is not yet factored in, but we're starting to realize what the real human cost of you know, fixing that damage is going to be and like what cleaning up that waste is, is now in, in the future going to cost. So I think that that's something that's not yet really factored in, but it is something to, to really look at if you're, if you're looking at this from like an economic climate situation. Yeah, realistically, we don't know the cost of what we're going to have to deal with as far as like, yeah. you know, if you throw away a printer instead of like refurbishing it and we just have a mountain full of dead fucking printers, like that there's more cost in it than just bringing it to the dump. Like there, uh, we're absorbing more economic costs, like managing that that issue itself. Yeah, just creating more jobs that need to be done. So like, I think that's not yet something that's really a factor in the values we're looking at at the current market, but like going into the future, I think we're going to start realizing that like, oh, this massive amount of waste is going to start when they start affecting, you know, green capitalism initiatives, that's really going to be shifted on to the poorest of us as usual. So this is where uh, we're going to start seeing the cost of cleaning up this crisis and starting to deal with it being shifted upon the actual, it's going to be reflected in the value of the commodities. So this is really like a damnation of capitalism on the whole. Like our children are literally going to be paying for our current moment of decadence. It's true. I mean, really just, just as kid. Yeah. Just the one y'all can hear. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. Every other episode for whoever's listening, y'all get to hear my kid complaining in the background. <laughs> he gets to learn. It's disseminating to him. Yeah, I mean, he still has to listen to it, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's only three, but, you know, I, I didn't get capital at any age, and I'm 32, so whatever age. Okay, so that's a, that's a, I feel good about that idea now. Okay, so next question. So, you know how people will be like, hey, y'all, like, money's not real. It's all just imagined. Like, we're all just up. So it, that like, comes up in a lot of intro philosophy classes. Like, these social contracts are maintained by collective participation. The law, like, the U.S. legal system does not exist in a material way. Uh, it's just imagined and upheld by everybody. But I think the Marxist outlook really shows the limitations of that point of view, being that, you know, good for you for, like, pretending the legal system doesn't exist but it's not going to help you when a cop shows up and arrests you for not paying your taxes. So that's just like kind of the notion I had, like, is value a social construct? Well, it is socially constructed, but that doesn't mean it's not objective. That doesn't mean it's not material. It can be abstract and still material. No, absolutely. That's, that sounds like and prim economics. Like, I mean, I, and another thing that's kind of similar to that is how people like to talk about transferring to a, a labor voucher system or or whatever. And, and like, there's even a point at which Mark says, like, you know, like anything that's supposed to be representative of money, like, and is to function as money, but just because you're not calling it money, it, it's, it's still fucking money, man. Like you don't get to choose yeah. that. Yeah. Money is the thing that greases the wheels of economy. We use it because it's a matter of efficiency and we have a right. market that's so highly developed that even if we were to socialize it, you can't just, you can't make that large scale of system function purely on, on the barter system as, as you know, these people seem to be, con, you know, injecting with that whole idea. So like you need money to, to make the market flow. Like it's, it's not necessarily a commodity or it's not necessarily capital. Like capital is both 
money and commodities, but money is not inherently capital. And that's like an idea we right. really need to, to separate. Absolutely. Like money is going to have to exist, but capital does not. Exactly. Like on that point, I think the, I don't know which context we're talking in. I had to go for a second, but on, because I heard the labor voucher thing. I think the idea was for labor vouchers that they cannot be circulated. Like that was the whole thing because you want to stop whatever money form you have right now from becoming capital is the fact that when you expend your labor voucher on buying a certain commodity, that labor voucher is no longer valid. Like yeah, it's, it's about it in, narrowing say, down the potential like, use value of the money form so that it can't be changed into yeah, so a, it can't yeah. change into okay. capital. I, I can see that. Yeah. So I don't know where that fits in in yeah. the capitalist system. Marx addresses in this chapter the exact point where money shifts to becoming capital, and it is in that extraction of surplus value that we finally get to see in the labor being forced to work past what is necessary. That's where the money becomes capital, and that's where capital comes from. Yeah, because you have the MCM prime relation, basically. Like, unless you have money that in the end comes out as more money after you purchased a commodity and resold it, then you're not treating money as capital. Because then you have same quantity and same quality at both ends of, of a metamorphosis. And that that is not, like, nobody does that, basically. That was his whole thing. Like, no capitalist goes in with $100 to have $100 come out the other end. Yeah, that's the equilibrium system that he was saying the capitalist was so astonished by. Like, in that system, he couldn't possibly make his surplus value. And without the ability to create surplus value, you can't turn money into capital. The nice thing is that he showed, like, you don't have to, with how the use value of labor power is, you actually don't have to, like, have no exchange of equivalents before you suddenly have capital. I do like, I feel like I'm finally starting to be able to distinguish between like how an ideal planned society with a properly functioning economy should function in the way that like capitalism has like decayed from that. So um, especially like after this chapter, um, learning like how surplus is created, I feel like I have a much stronger grasp on that. Like, I definitely don't know what a socialist economy really does look like, but I know what it doesn't at this point. Like, we're, right. we're defining what capitalism is, and, like, it's kind of this picture is getting a little bit clearer, and we're starting to see just what we're working against, you know? Like, I know that if capital can be created, it's not a socialist economy. I know that production of commodities can, in fact, take place without capitalism, so a socialist economy can come up like integrate the production of commodities and a market in a way so like the window is getting clearer but we'll see what and it's also actually clearer it's clearer now why he tells us that we need to seize the means of production yes quite literally (laughs) yeah Yeah. because those are two things that allow the uh that belong to us (laughs) yeah they technically belong to us in the capitalist maintaining control over them is what allows them to create the surplus value exactly markets like markets are not capitalism exchange is not capitalism capitalism really emerges from like the basic principles we're setting out right now but accumulation is such a big aspect of how capitalism manifests itself so it's nonsensical to say that just because people have money that it's not socialist you really have to look more carefully and see like the political character of accumulation and how much that actually manifests in people's lives. Yeah, I can't remember the the terminology he uses um, in that like super long 
footnote a couple chapters ago where he talks about the difference between like economic and uh, this other word um and he talks about how like economic is just you know trading things for the sake of trade whereas this other thing is trading things for the sake of hoarding things for the sake of just wanting to have more things and so like there's a big difference there and that's that's like what capitalism like capitalism is just the sake of having more things than anyone else having more things than what you've traded like ending up with more than what you started with and doing that over and over again for the sake of doing it for like i think he said like for the sake of growth yeah capital is money that is used specifically for the purpose of exchange (laughs) like once you use money like solely for the intent of expanding your exchange value that is the moment your your money turns into capital and same thing with commodities. When you exchange a commodity solely for the intent of expanding your initial exchange value you bought it for, that's when commodities become capital. And also Marx is so, like, this is so much more realistic than a lot of economics models because it actually reflects the real needs and actions of real people. So, like, I, I encountered this example from Richard Wolff first, and now I'm seeing Marx spell it out, but... When Marx first spells out this concept of like, okay, you're going to convert this amount of yarn into this amount of cotton or backwards or whatever, and it's going to cost this amount of labor power. And so overall, the capitalist spends 15 shillings to get all the labor and material and means of production to produce this. And then the capitalist sells it for 15 shillings. And the capitalist is left with nothing. So then why does the capitalist do this? It doesn't make any sense. So that's why you know that there's definitely surplus labor, because otherwise, like, capitalists wouldn't exist. It's when they realize that the sustenance they have to pay, the worker can work more than what the sustenance, the value of the sustenance is they need to work that amount. Like, they, they only need six hours of labor time to produce their sustenance, which can allow them to work for 12 hours that day. That's where the surplus value comes in. Like, that's exactly where the point becomes where, okay, he's worked or they've worked as much as they need for their sustenance, which is the exchange value of their labor power, which is what you're paying them. But then they can also work another six hours on that. And that's where you have this, the the fact that labor power can produce surplus value. And that's the surplus value that is under capitalism. We started well in feudalism. We started with what, like full 12 hour work days in the summertime and capitalism, we only managed to cut it down to eight hours, and it took a bunch of blood and fighting at the turn of the 20th century. And now where are we in 2019 yeah, yeah. with all this better technology and all the development? <laughs> yeah, we're going back to 12 hours, actually. It's not even staying at eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous because workers yeah. are getting more efficient over time as technology increases, and we should be getting more leisure time as this develops. We should be able to do our socially necessary labor and then just go fucking home. No, it's amazing because you also have this culture growing of being a workaholic is actually right. now a good thing. Like this, this I don't know, work until you die. Like this, this don't quit when you're tired, quit when you're done. And it's like, no, I want to quit oh, when I I'm work tired. Tech and it's you. so bad. Like I, I met this one person who said like when they were an intern, they would just be in the office from like 9 a.m. to like 9 p.m. because they just had nothing else to do. Because your your whole value is also determined by you producing making profit for a capitalist is now how your how your value is perceived. Like that's how you're a good employee. Not if you take care of your mental health, not if you have spent time with exactly. your kids, not if you yeah, spend time it's with your family. Yourself as the realization of value and not as an individual. So like 
you're a bad employee if you choose to put your family above your work. Like, look at all these these motivational slogans. You know, you, if you if you don't want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, you can't be successful. Uh, if you go back home after ten hours and then there's this person staying for twelve hours, you yeah. Failed so like, my mom whatever. has has been the general manager of a storage unit facility for like I don't know, like ten years. And she's a salary employee. She makes the same amount no matter if she works 40 hours or 60 hours or 70 hours. And she only gets paid for 40 hours no matter how much she puts in. And the thing is, is she always puts in like 60 hours, 70 hours a week. Like so and and the longer that she's been there, like she's she feels like morally obligated to stay there because like her entire perception of her own identity is like dependent on whether or not she is a good and loyal employee and they pay her shit so like it, it's complete bull like she hates it she's stressed all the time but like she she's never going to leave there because she needs to like her own like mental and emotional need um depends on her staying there and being a good employee even though they don't even pay her for for like uh, you know half of her time so it's just it's complete bullshit because like and she's always like oh i'm too tired to do anything with um the family which you know is because she's made the decision to stay in this position where she gives them her free labor consistent so yeah it's and it's not like her situation is unique like that's that's basically the the standard model for salary jobs shout out to anyone who's like looking for their first tech job because startup culture sucks you have to like go from place to place and be like, yeah, fulfilling logistical efficiency modeling is actually my life's passion. And that's the only way you get hired. Oh my uh, God, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just transferred to, like, out of the IT yeah. program. <laughs> you have to go like, I was like, this is yourself to person hopeless. after person. So this is actually, Jess, what you're talking about is like, like an ideological component that's really captured in Mark Fisher's capitalist realism where he describes the movie Office Space, where the waitress character has, like, you have to wear an amount of, like, merit badges or something, and you're supposed to wear... Oh, yeah, your flair. Yeah, yeah so, these these fun badges. So she to... has to wear... Yeah, uh, the minimum is three badges. badges, so she wore three badges, and her boss is like, wow, it looks like you don't even care. Don't you think you should wear... Like, don't you think you would really like it if you wore ten badges? And she's like... So you want me yeah. to wear 10 badges, why don't you just make the minimum 10? It's like, I'm not saying you have to make it 10. The minimum's three. It's just like, it's up to you. Yeah, that's so, like, that's from, office, that's from Office Space. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And they don't even want us, like, they don't even want to pay to make us, like, do our own labor and enslave ourselves now. They would rather just, like, brainwash us into manipulating ourselves into doing this. I mean, the movie Pursuit of Happiness, the Will Smith movie, where he worked for stockbrokers. Like, now that I read this and I think about this, I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's not a feel-good movie. He should not be grateful for them having worked him an unpaid internship for two months while he's sleeping in a homeless shelter and not drinking water so he doesn't have to take bathroom breaks. And, like like dragging his kid around and sleeping with his kid in a, in a bathroom yeah. once because he couldn't make it into a homeless shelter and that's marketed as a feel good movie of how look he 
he but you know what? It, that story is not abnormal. Like, is I mean, bad. there were so many times I almost had to make the same decisions he did. Like, that's complete and total bullshit that, like, that is a an expected behavior of us as workers. That, like, we have to completely demolish our entire identity and dignity and and like our own health in order to even be like marketable to the to the capitalist yeah. boss yeah do you realize like not a not at one point in the movie did he even think of like wait a minute what i am doing work for them like how am i not paid how on earth am i like going back to a homeless shelter while they go and live in their fancy villas like not at one point does he even think about it like that movie is complete capitalist realism right no he's like earning his keep which is bullshit he should have been paid for it he was working he just gave it to them for free just just out of the goodness of his own heart it is it's completely free labor i think you might be right. right i think we might actually be in a dystopia right now like that might be I what's think... going on like those terrifying movies like Blade Runner. Yo, I think this isn't supposed to work. As, as things really are. Yeah, something... Like I was watching Rick Roderick. He's a philosophy teacher. I, I think I've talked about him before. But anyway, he meant like Blade Runner isn't going to happen because somebody blows up nukes. Blade Runner is just going to slowly happen when yep. we don't realize it. People assume that things will be as obvious as Black Mirror without, like, looking at all this stuff happening around them, because they haven't read Capital. And it's yeah. not their fault, but, like, I'm now starting to get into the cultural hegemony sort of concepts, and, like, it, it is really pressing for us to break this ideological sphere in America. Like, if you're interested in that, uh, the, the oh, yeah? uh, lectures by Rick Roderick are really nice. So the nice thing is he's, he's a philosophy professor in the 1990s in Duke. He's from West Texas, so he has, like, a West Texas accent while talking about philosophy, which is it just like I came for the <laughs> lecture and stayed for the accent, basically. Um, but like I came into contact with that because uh, this YouTube channel was like doing a debunking on a postmodern explaining postmodernism book that Peterson was talking about, and they they said just go watch these lectures. This guy from the 1990s is basically debunking Peterson without knowing him. Uh, so the lectures are on the postmodern condition and Nietzsche, and then he has like most like he goes through Foucault, Derrida, Baudrillard and all those and he talks about like he also mentions Marx but none of the titles actually say that he mentions Marx and I think that's done on purpose and he engages the ideas of like you know there's a there's like how how does culture get to this like how like look at Blade Runner look at this movie I've watched recently because he also talks about a lot of movies he's watched in his time and says look at what kind of ideology they're trying to put and especially it's nice because it came right after the fall of the Soviet Union and he mentions a lot of you know it was just because our propaganda was better than theirs like it, there, there's nothing like, I heard from good Victor Grossman who was a former American soldier that like defected to the GDR and as you might be aware like, yeah at the end of the GDR a lot of people were in pro-unification because they saw shows he literally said they would see East West German shows like Dallas and they assume that everybody in capitalist countries lived that way. Yeah. It's amazing that you don't consider Friends or How I Met Your Mother or any rom-com mm -hmm. as propaganda. I mean, how many people actually can afford to live how the characters in How I Met Your Mother lived by going to a bar every fucking day? 
and eating outside every fucking day. And having a house like, that That is not something as people a can afford. Yeah, yeah. As a as a professor, like as college students, there were two college students at mm. first when they moved in there. Yeah, they had like a big ass apartment with what, like two bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, and a living room. The living room is like the size of like two times my house, my whole house with four roommates. Yeah, yeah. And like they were broke accordingly to the what they said, and they could still be at the bar every night and buying Under drinks for girls and all have that shit. Public radio telling us every day about how great the economy is doing, and then we get to make fun of the DPRK for brainwashing its citizens. Yeah, it's crazy. Like I, I was talking to people about you know Musk and and stuff like that, and and I was telling them you know Chinese electric cars are actually doing a lot better. Like even even on. Like the scale of environmental protection they're doing and stuff like that, and like, oh yes, but China's a dictatorship. I'm like, Wrong. oh god. <laughs> so I was like, you know, the thing is, I was telling them that if they enact an environmental policy, if a CEO or if a, a working person, like, uh, for example, breaks the law on that, they both get arrested and face the same consequences. How is that a dictatorship? Like, how is the fact that if you break the law, you get arrested, regardless of your social status, a dictatorship? How about uh, millionaires getting arrested? How about corrupt politicians actually getting arrested? These are all things that happen. Yeah, like, and that was like, oh, no, but they're say forcing. Say about our government in America. I don't yeah. know the last time a fucking corrupt politician got arrested, and I mean, yeah. look at the yeah, lot of lock them. Lock her up I mean, is something that America, like, lock her up is something that the liberal half of America makes fun of. And it's like accountability for people committing crimes. Not that those are based <laughs> on the shit crimes, but like locking up people for committing crimes should not be a foreign idea. No, especially not politicians because they <laughs> they do fuck up a lot. So like, come on. Yeah. Like if if that's a dictatorship, then then give me some of that. Like, <laughs> and would you rather have freedom with the world ending from climate disaster or an authoritarian dictatorship that doesn't kill everybody? Yeah, yeah, like I was telling them that. I was like, so what if you have to force people not to use cars? Yeah, We want to live. Like, I'd yeah, rather I'm live than to use my car. I'm willing to go through, like, pretty much any amount of, like, lifestyle change um, in order to make sure that, like, I have a grandchild, you know? Yeah, fair point. Like, you don't, you don't need to justify that point even. Like, there is no – you don't need any further justification. Because I don't want everyone to die. yeah. So wait a minute, you're saying I can't drive no. the guys, car I bought How to are have we going to be able to afford it? <laughs> like, uh. I'm not happy about having to, like, I'm trying to reduce my meat consumption, and I'm not, like, happy about it, but, like, I don't have a choice, because meat yeah. is going to get way too expensive in my lifetime. Yeah, that too. Like, and also, Tesla cars are not cheap. Like, people who think these are an alternative, I'm like, wait, you have a population who can't even yeah, afford to have a car. Not. They're going to buy a Tesla and now? there's no time for the car. Oh, but they're attainable. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Uh, Ani, you're somehow, it's your, your mic is just it's messing up a bit. You sound very distant. Yeah, I'm going to reset my internet. Yeah. I have two, two more questions oh. that I'll come back to. Yeah. It's getting late over there, isn't it? What time is it where you're at? It's... Twelve thirty six a.m. Oh boy! Oh, <laughs> oh. it's okay. I'm having fun. It's just it's it's a one hour twenty minute session so far, and I don't know. Like editing that was gonna be a bitch. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to overload all of our editors. Also, thank you, Ani, for your editing <laughs> sacrifices. Oh, I, it's it's been a fun time. I hope to edit this one too. Just we've been so much more on topic this episode than chapter two. 
<laughs> oh yeah. yeah so the we, last we, like, three yeah. yeah the last three uh sessions have been i think a lot more uniform and um useful for somebody <laughs> to listen to yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean i think it's fun but i heard like we already have a, more than 500 listens and we have seven five star ratings on itunes oh nice yeah, where's my podcast <laughs> Patreon when? <laughs> oh yeah, so if anybody would like to join the book club, uh you get to do that by becoming a patron to the Proles of the Roundtable, um which is our parent podcast. And so we do this every Sunday and uh yeah. Also, oh my god, somebody on like the Chapo subreddit got mad at me because we haven't like release an episode and i'm like pay us like editing it's, it's <laughs> oh like, somebody was unreasonable oh. on chapo <laughs> color me shocked oh, no <laughs> wait they're like okay but i'm actually a little like happy that they're annoyed that we haven't released enough content yeah yeah like, <laughs> me too actually because i yeah that's kind of cool they're like damn it i'm past chapter one <laughs> <laughs> How dare you guys do this and not do it faster? Like we just people. In, like we should have just recorded one episode, trick a bunch of people into reading Capital and just stop. <laughs> like Scott is just to get everybody to just pick up a book just once. Like oh, there's somebody's doing it. Oh, never mind. Yo, also, um, wait, actually, wait, let, let me get through these two discussion questions, then I have a funny. Story. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll we can stop the recording and continue our banter just so yeah. we don't overload with too much uh, we can also like edit all this banter into the bonus section like we can move things around oh definitely so, yeah but it's just because the more recording you have the more it's going to take to edit it right, right. Just... uh but but that's okay i i mean as someone who's now editing some of this that's fine um because i i can always cut stuff if i don't want to edit it but it's it's not it's time consuming but it's not too much of a chore like it's kind of fun to do okay um yeah okay so um, I have two more questions that I wrote down. So, first of all, does anyone remember the footnote about the mule and the horse? Uh, so, this has to do uh, with, like, the working efficiency of a slave versus a proletarian. And this is something that still confuses me. Like, why move off of slave labor? Why pay people a wage instead of just forcing them to work? Is it that the cost of, like, brutal repression and, like, forced labor is more costly than it's worth? And that it's like cheaper to have people sell their labor, um, or what Marx comments on here is like he goes in this footnote about like the quality of the tools and like what quality of tool be tolerated in different systems. And I didn't really understand it. So does anyone have any like knowledge about that? I would probably say this has something to do with like the cost of maintaining your laborer and not just um, for the hours that you have them laboring. So um, if you give them money, you don't actually have to provide their clothing and shelter um, for them as well. They can seek those things elsewhere. And you can, as the capitalist, only provide the alienated source of labor that you'd like to focus So, uh, like, I remember reading it and not understanding it fully. The footnote is quite long. Like, But one thing I... If I if I look at the last section when he mentions that a horse cannot take the beating that uh, mules can take that beating. Um, he like now reading this again. Um, he makes the distinction that the laborer here in in being a slave is only distinguished from 
animal by being like he's a vocal instrument apparently like a capitalist considers him a vocal instrument uh, and considers an animal a semi-vocal instrument and an implement as an instrument that is mute like he says them in latin words but i'm going to assume that's what they mean um so but he himself takes care to let both beast and implement feel that he is none of them but is a man i think here he's mentioning the slave that in order for the slave to not himself feel like he is not distinguishable from an animal or an implement is by him acting out power over the implement and the animal by being harsher or you know more uh violent with either the implement or the animal because i think that's why he makes the point in the end of saying that mules were better suited for the farm because when farms had a lot of slaves these slaves would quote unquote assert their power their humanity I, not i don't know what good word to use here is like they would assert their difference from uh, a mule by exerting that power over them I think that's what he meant with that footnote. Like, I must say, it's also a bit confusing because it, it goes a winding road to make that point. So, like, this is kind of like a sensitive thing, of course, because, like, I don't, like, Marx obviously has real no grappling with the brutality of slavery being in, like, 1850s Europe. So if somebody wants to, like, call us out and expand on that better, like, totally go for it. Um, at the ProlsPod Twitter. <laughs> at the ProlsPod Twitter and we'll get it. If you're a worker and you, like, break all the tools that you use, like, I break all the laptops at my job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in normal cases, like, if you break all the stuff, you're going to get fired, but you can't fire a slave. That's an interesting point, yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the points that's being made here is um, something he said in a previous chapter, which is a labor force that's not receiving the full value of its labor can only maintain itself in a crippled state. And like when you look at the way that a slave was treated, they were deprived of everything. They were beaten like they were living in the most abject and worst conditions you could possibly imagine. And like that affects their ability to to perform an outward labor. And I think it's a point of how like the treatment of the labor is reflected in the laborer's treatment of the implements of production. So it would be more costly to have slaves just because because uh, of the co- the human cost of being such always. a depraved yeah. piece of shit like yeah. that yeah. like that like I think it's about saying that that comes back maybe so it's like it giving yeah like like making sure like so the motivation to paying somebody a wage where they're still unable to live as opposed to like maintaining slavery yeah be able to be more capable of participating as a laborer yeah, like the the better you treat a labor force, the more capable it becomes. The greater the education that you provide to the labor force, the more the labor is able to do, the more that they can self-actualize as a laborer, and the less, you know, they like the less But the self-actualization um, cost is still there theater. Is along the way. Yeah, the self like the autonomy is all like manufactured. It's not a real thing. Absolutely, but it's it's definitely a point of distinguishment though between yeah so it's, you know, a, it's a matter and... of like right it's a matter of like it's easier to convince people that they have a choice than to outright tell them that they don't yeah and it's more cost effective in the end is what i think is right. the point being made that to a capitalist it's oh, actually no, yeah. in the long run 
more costly to keep slaves than it is to to modify the system into our our modern modern like what we think of as a, a work economy i remember watching a philosophy tube video about hegel and uh it had this uh, the hegelian recognition concept i think of master and slave and it had that point a bit about you know when you treat a person as a slave and what happens then but then how you as a master also feel the repercussions of that and this is purely idealistic like this is this doesn't go into like actual material conditions but i think philosophy to like uh, ollie basically expands on that and says what marx then took from this dialectic that hegel introduced into applying it to material conditions i've linked it in the voice chat text just if anybody wants to have a look at that later I think it'll illuminate this concept. Hey, if you're ever feeling stupid, just remember that, like, everyone thinks Aristotle is smart. Everyone thinks Locke is smart. Those guys advocated for slavery. So if you really want to see the extent to, like, ideological, like, totality, like, you know, as many great contributions as all those guys made, they were still pro-slavery. It's a pretty good yardstick to measure yourself against, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they did all that, but I didn't advocate slavery, so I guess I'm still smarter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so that I'm glad I asked that question because I had totally read the mule horse thing as a metaphor <laughs> in like a contrived way, so that uh, makes sense. Okay, now here's the last question I have written down, I think. Um, so, is skilled labor a commodity? Um some of us were talking on a different note in the false plot discord about like what does it mean to be petty bourgeois um, and own some amount of assets or some segment of the means of production because to be petty bourgeois might mean that you own like one house that you rent out and that you can rely on for income you own like your own cleaning business or yeah something like that or a small amount of stocks in shares right like i'd I like to look at it not as if you how much money you have. Like so if you have a cleaning business but you sit at home all day while someone else oversees it and you only reap the uh, surplus value or the profit no matter how big or small that is you are a capitalist. I think you can then rank that person as bourgeois and not not petty bourgeois. I would rank that's why I was thinking petty bourgeois because most of the time a cleaning business, like the vast majority of them, are like people who are sole proprietors or like two people, like that that yeah, are like co-owners of it. Of production, exactly. But they're if also you own the workers. Means of production, but you also work a lot. Then you're a petty bourgeois, basically. Because so yeah, I think petty bourgeois is just because you own means of production, you are not. A proletariat, because a proletariat is characterized by owning nothing but the labor power they sell on the market. If you're petty bourgeois, the moment you own a certain means of production, and but you still have to work a lot, regardless. So, like, let's say, um, let's say you own the means of production, but you also like do labor. Like, let's say, for example, I met um, someone that was a like sheet metal uh, building like contractor and so like he does labor but he also like owns his business and makes like such a significant amount of money that he can afford to hire people whenever he needs to i mean i i would argue that like i don't know if he's even petty bourgeoisie i think he might be like 
I don't know. He's so alienated from the concept of and the value of even his own labor that I just I feel like he he has no view of the the proletariat lens at all. Like I just don't see him being a middle ground. Like if we want to take a dialectic approach, I think this whole thing like we can't really draw a line fully and say petty bourgeois uh, capitalist. I think you can draw a line between petty bourgeois and proletariat. Because literally, proletariat is you don't own means of production at all. Yeah. But I think the the line, like the, the the transition from petty bourgeois to capitalist, is a bit harder to to like full on, you know, type or have a type between. Um, like the way I try to think about it to make it easier for myself is, um, basically, kulaks were petty bourgeois because they owned farms. Let's assume that they worked on them. But they could also not sell the commodities. They could sustain themselves by the means of production they had, uh, for example. So the moment I think you would turn into a complete capitalist is when you just you can just really sit on your money and not do any work. If you can yeah. stop working for, let's say, two years and still be okay, you're a capitalist. Yeah. You're a bourgeoisie. Your money part just of generates right. money by its own will. Regardless of how much money that is. Yeah, and I, I like, so I'm a member of the IWW, and um, basically almost anybody can be a member of um, the IWW, the, the big union, but um, the only people who can't are people who are bosses. And the main reason why is because, and basically if you are like petty bourgeoisie or bourgeois, and the main reason why is because um, you do not, share any of the same concerns when it comes to the exchange of labor power. And so um, like your, your position on the buy and sell trade of labor power is the wrong side. And so um, like I, I, that's where I think that's why it's so easy to see the distinction between proletariat and petty bourgeois, like why there's a big difference there. Um, even though, like, economically, they may make, a, like, a similar amount. Like, somebody who is a complete proletarian um, can easily make as much as somebody who has, like, one rental property. Like, as far as, like, their, their income bracket or whatever. But as far as, like, their position and their interests when it comes to the buying and selling of labor or commodities, there's a vast difference. Okay, so um, here, kind of, like, where I'm coming out to this question, so... First of all, I like don't expect an answer in the course of this session because I think it's really complicated. Second of all, like this really has to do a lot with America situated at the top of a global imperialist hierarchy, uh, at the top of a global imperialist hierarchy where we have like this settler suburbia population um, who is working but so much more comfortable that it's really weird to me how to classify different people. And moreover, I think the weirdness, the blurriness is intentional. The, the point of a labor aristocracy is to break up class class solidarity. So, you know, being blurred and confusing is just more useful. So um, I was studying the Philippines recently uh, as part of like an educational session and uh, educated people were described as petty bourgeois. And this is kind of the thing I want to contend with. So as a, a software engineer with like a degree so that it's actually relevant to my job, um, I have like a certain amount of skills. So whereas on one hand, like I am at the whim of being fired by my employer at any time and then being jobless. On the other hand, like I will find a job if I get fired. 
because I have the right amount of skills that are like really in demand right now. Um, so I don't have to worry about being unemployed unless I were to like become ill and unable to work, uh, which I still worry about too. Um, so here's my question. Like is part of the means of production imbued within me are the skills that I have learned in terms of programming, like, uh, entrenched is that educational labor formed into me as a person and that's why I have control over that section of the means of production because you can't produce software without like people with CS degrees really like to an extent right the cost of your labor commodity actually absorbs the means of production that would be your education so like every time you do a job you do one one thousandth of a degree worth of your the labor already applied to you. <laughs> well, yeah, this is kind of where he's like started talking about how man is a commodity similar to nature. And like in, in what Jess said, like, yeah, your the cost of your degree is uh, worth whatever you can apply it to over your lifetime. But he also says that you can't really look at a person and determine what their operating life will be just by looking at them in the same way you can the actual means of production. So I think there is a distinguishing line between like your education is is part of the means of production in that when you apply your labor, you are transferring the value of the means of production onto a commodity. So you're taking the raw materials and you're taking the instruments of labor and through your labor, however skilled it may be, you can create a greater value while implementing it onto those tools. So like when you use the means of production, I think it is separate from your education in a way. So like, that's just how like a hot, like where we start distinguishing highly skilled and skilled labor. Um, and he says that your labor time may be of a greater value, but that is affected by the cost of what it takes to get that education. I don't know if that okay, that's that. interesting. But what if I'm in like a less backwards country and I didn't pay anything for my for I didn't pay anything for my education, but that's still been embodied in me. I, actually, I guess then somebody is still paying for it. Yeah, because it's still in it's the labor still like other labor had to be done. Wait, yeah, labor had to be done to get you that education, whether it cost you anything or not, whether it's socially. So, like oh, no. one of the things he says is that like. All the tools we use, all the implements of production carry trace amounts of the value of previous generations. And like, that's where he's talking about like the, the developments and the implements and, and the work that was done to create those developments. Like when you create a new production over the old one, it increases by a certain amount of value. And like, he's talking about within that increased value of the means of production, um, like the, the old work is embodied in that. So like everything is constructive in a way. So even things that you don't really necessarily think of having like this value to them, like um, the designers of the wheel are the value that they put into it is almost kind of imbued in the cost of a car today. Still like there's still traits of trace amounts of that use value that they put into it so long ago. Like let's say somebody a long time ago made a patent for a particular amount of technology that is useful for something being produced today is that patent or like that knowledge however it's formed part of the means of production the value that's imbued in it like i wouldn't necessarily equate to like any kind of intellectual property rights sort of thing or 
or like a patent sort of deal. I think it's more about um, being representative of the labor time and not necessarily just like ownership of an idea. Cause like, this is kind of like dismissing the idea that like, like any one inventor really true invented anything like using um, uh, Edison, the vampire as a, as an example, he never really invented anything, but like he used the constructive knowledge of many workers and scientists over generations at a time. And then in the more extreme example, in the immediate, he literally stole inventions from small time inventors and patented themselves and said, Hey, I invented this. So like, it sounds I, like the American dream. Oh, it absolutely is. But like outside of that, you want to think of like a distinguishing line between like, when you create something you don't necessarily own an ideal that ideal doesn't necessarily have value until somebody can come along and put that value to use so like it's the whole idea that like these great men and these scientists didn't build the world the workers built the world we built the eiffel tower and the, the pyramids and you know what have you um y'all i don't want to be a party pooper but i think i have to cut this short like if we can wrap up in a bit, just because I want to. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's got to be bedtime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I started gotta start getting into bed. I'm falling I gotta do some momming. That's chill. Um, but we had a good discussion today, I think. Yeah, it was really nice. I think so too. One hour forty-five minutes. It's yeah, been... that was a session. Is this a long one or a short one? This is a long this one. Is a do long we plan one, for? A... Yeah. Do we plan for an hour or for two hours? I forgot. We usually plan for like an hour. One hour thirty minutes, I think, was our beginning. But then we usually started doing an hour stuff because the chapters weren't that. Like we did discuss them for thirty minutes, and then we went into like applying them to now, which then devolved into bashing liberalism. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we forgot to apply this to now, but we did have a lot of present discussion anyway. So that's... we did, we did within the whole chapter. Like I, I, I kept note of that just so. Like thinking that we don't have to have a uh, separate section, I think this time. Yeah. Because a lot of the chapters now really apply to now. Like before, when we were doing chapter one, two, and three, which was like basically full-on theory, that we really had to try and think. Oh, okay, a can of Coke. What is use value? What is exchange value? And all that. But uh, now it's more like labor day and hour labor, and you know. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah. Okay, so we can yeah. call it a. Recording then, and if people want to stick around and do like general off-topic chat, we can uh, do that too. Oh yeah, definitely. I don't want to like cut into the middle of a nice conversation. I just have to leave and stop the recording. <laughs> All right, so I think that's a wrap then. Awesome. Well, thanks for right, listening. Bye. 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 Hey, that was Proles of the Book Club. If you want to support our parent podcast or join the book club, you can ship in a buck to the Proles of the Roundtable Patreon and join us in the Discord server. We're on Twitter at Pearl's Book Club, and if you have any questions or need companion resources we haven't already linked, just DM us there. Thanks to the Craigbot for helping us record in this Discord, and thank you to Keenan for the intro theme. Bye!